Welcome to the Sydney Uni EU podcast. Today's talk is from 1 Samuel and was given by Brian Learn. Alrighty,、um, it's good to see you. My name is Brian. If you haven't met me, I'm part of the senior staff team that works alongside the EU. And I'd love to meet you if you are new or visiting today. A really warm welcome to you if that is you. We love having visitors and newcomers come along. And so, if that's you, a really warm welcome from me as well. I'm really glad you came. Now, I have a really quite a difficult task today because I realise that if you are new to the EU, or maybe you're just you know new to the Bible, we're jumping into a part of the Bible that is really not that familiar, even for most Christians, I would say. And、uh, certainly, when I was in my first year of uni. You know, I was just starting to read the Bible for myself. I really was not familiar with the Old Testament at all. But you guys, you're here at Sydney Uni. You're up for a big challenge, and so we're just going to jump in into the book of One Samuel, and we're going to see how we go. And I want to start our journey into this part of the Bible by talking about why it is that we need a king. We have a queen, of course,、uh, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. But her influence and power and authority are quite limited, and we like it that way. We've moved on from the days of absolute monarchs who command these vast empires, and we have a constitutional monarchy. But our system of government is a liberal democracy. It's deliberately designed not to ever give anyone quite enough power and authority to do anything catastrophically dangerous. Now there are some among us who would like to go a bit further. I recently looked,、uh, listened to a podcast in which they interviewed a young person who described themselves as a libertarian.、Uh, that is, they described how their ideal world would be one where all government regulations and controls were completely dropped, and people were just free to do whatever they liked—a kind of utopian anarchy. Now you don't have to go to those kinds of extremes to be wary of authority. Of course, our attention is brought by news outlets, even right at this very moment, to places in the world that have governments that have a much more authoritarian approach to government than we do, and the commentators are all very concerned about that. Our Australian culture has historically been very much against any kind of authority figure, and we valorise the rebel and the scallywag. At least that's what we say, but the reality is not really very much in favour of anarchy. Well, let me take us back to the Bible and show you how the scene is set for the book of One Samuel. Now, the historical context is set for us a few pages earlier in your Bible, in the book of Judges. And in terms of timeline, if you kind of think, if you go back a thousand, two thousand years from now. You get to the time of Jesus. You go back another thousand years before Jesus. That's the time of the first kings of Israel. That's the time period that Samuel is set, and just a little bit before that is when the judges are. Now, in the book of Judges, the people of Israel have entered the promised land. Now, previously they had had some strong leaders. In Moses, they had a leader who was leading the people out of Egypt. In Joshua, they had a leader who was leading them into the promised land. But then, after Joshua died, 
they didn't have any unifying leader at all for a period of time. And what they had instead was this period of time when the people of Israel were in the Promised Land, but they had this uneasy coexistence between them and a whole bunch of other people groups, nations that were also in the land at the same time, enemy tribes. And uh, maybe one way to think about it is it's a bit like, you're, imagine you're in some backwater part of the Star Wars universe where there's no one in charge. There's a whole bunch of different tribes there. Some of them are in town, some of them are nomads, and they're all just trying to establish dominance for their own group. And so they're always raiding each other, always, uh, you know, starting wars or skirmishes against each other. They're trying to, you know, just do what, what makes, gets them ahead while, while there's no king in the land. Well, the book of Judges shows us a land that is really not a fun place to be. In the epilogue to the book, the last section of the book, the author reflects on the state of leadership in Israel. They say four times, and you can see it there on your outline, in those days, Israel had no king. And two of those times, they followed up with this line, everyone did as they saw fit. That is, there was no king, no leadership, no order, no unity. And it was anarchy. In those last chapters of Judges, we get painted for us a very grim picture of what life was like. The people were out of control. They're morally corrupt. They're socially in chaos. Everyone just does what they like, and that is not a good thing. And the context in which we come to the books of Samuel is clear. Israel needs a king. We need a king. And we recognize this as well. Very few organizations have ever really gotten very far without some sort of leadership. Most, some of us have been in group projects where there has been no initiative, no leadership taken. And those kinds of group projects tend to have terrible communication, a total lack of progress, and they've become a demotivating experience for everyone who's involved. And if that's true of a group project at uni, how much more true is it of larger organizations as well? Leadership brings direction and purpose, efficiency and effectiveness to the whole group. We need leaders. We need a kind of king. And it's not surprising that Sydney Uni has made it part of its mission to build leaders. And even in the EU, part one of our goals is to raise up godly Christian leaders. But now we encounter a tension. Because even though we need a leader, we need a kind of king, not just any kind of king will do. Bad leaders can make things worse than having no leader at all. Because bad managers have squandered opportunities, lost business, money, and employees. Bad authorities have practiced corruption and favoritism, choosing self-gain over the pursuit of justice. Bad governments have persecuted minorities and silenced truth-tellers. Bad kings have led entire nations into destruction. 1 Samuel is a book that introduces us to the first kings of Israel, the ones who are to bring direction and leadership to the people of Israel. But it introduces them with a strong warning. In chapter 8, when the people first ask for a king, even though we came into the book expecting that Israel needed a king, it's not presented as a good thing when the people ask 
4.1. Look down at the words on your page from 1 Samuel chapter 8, and I'll start reading from verse 4. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. I won't read the rest of it, but you have it there for context. The people of Israel need a king. They want a king, but what they don't know is what really they are asking for. The cost of leadership is the need to submit to that leadership. The king will demand taxes and labor and land and service for the privilege of being led. And the wrong leader will lead you into trouble. A bad king might even become your oppressor, an enemy. So we must embrace this tension. On the one hand, we need a king. That seems so clear from our previous discussion and from the context of judges. But not just any kind of king will do. To have no king is to live in chaos, but to live with the wrong king is to live in misery. So let's go on to the second heading, which is the kind of king that fails. You see, the books of Samuel tell us the story of King David, the most famous king of Israel, by contrast to the king who came before him, the first king of Israel, King Saul. Now, in fact, you might even say that 1 Samuel tells us the story of the rise and fall of Saul. And it's really only as Saul falls that we're introduced to the rise of David. And so, you know, I'm asked for, this, for the next few weeks to speak on the life of David, but the reality is we'll never understand David until we understand that he's being presented to us in this book as a contrast to the one who came before him, Saul. So, for instance, you might have heard of the story of David and Goliath. It's one of the famous stories of the Old Testament. Goliath is this giant, battle-hardened, Philistine super soldier. And uh, David, you might have heard he's contrasted because he's small, he's young, he's a shepherd boy who's not even wearing any armor. But David defeats Goliath, this victory for the underdog. And fair enough. But in fact, you haven't seen everything that there is to see about that story and what it's trying to show us about David until you see that David's not just being contrasted against the Philistine, the Goliath, but he's being contrasted against the king, Saul. So we must actually spend most of the rest of our time today talking about why is it that Saul failed, and then we'll be able to notice what we're really supposed to notice about David. So why did Saul fail? I'll give you three reasons. And the first is because he was fearful. Fear prevents you from making good decisions as a leader. And it makes you do things, lead in a way that can easily backfire on you. Now, the problem isn't so much that Saul experienced being afraid. All of us uh, experience that. It's very natural. It happens to all of us. But the problem was that Saul, he led out of a place of fear. 
Now, part of the way you can see that is the way that he leads others is by uh, using the tactics of fear. And so in chapter 11, he musters the fighting men of Israel. How? He takes a pair of oxen and he cuts them up and he takes the pieces of meat and bone and he sends them to the town of Israel and he says, follow me or I will cut up your oxen. Now there's no stirring vision. There's no, there's no appeal to moral integrity. There's no appeal even to national pride. He's leading with fear. He motivates others by fear. And why? Probably because he himself is motivated by fear of failure. In chapter 14, he uses the same tactic again. While chasing down the Philistine army, he drives his own troops by saying, no one is allowed to eat until we've defeated the enemy. Now, in fact, actually what he says is, cursed be anyone who eats food before I have avenged myself on my enemies. Now, clearly he thinks this is a good way to motivate his army. You set the performance goal, eliminate the enemy, you withhold the reward, having food, until the goal is, is achieved. But this command actually totally backfires in at least three ways. First of all, when they finally do get to eat, the soldiers are so famished that they totally disregard the ceremonial law of Israel. They eat meat that still has the blood in it, which is forbidden in the Old Testament. Second of all, he's ignorant that the whole reason why they won that victory in the first place was because his own son, Jonathan, had snuck into the Philistine outpost, single-handedly almost, defeated, uh, killed 20 of them, and sent the rest of them into a panic. And but because of this curse that he's put on his own people, he ends up cursing his own son. And the soldiers have to stop him from killing his own son, Jonathan, the very one who won them the victory in the first place in an attempt to save face. And thirdly, if that wasn't enough, they can't even finish the job of chasing down the Philistines. Saul failed because he was fearful, but he also failed because he was faithless. In chapter 13, the chapter that we read, Samuel, the priest and prophet, who had anointed Saul to be king in the first place, he had previously told Saul, wait for me for seven days. But now Saul was under attack. He was outnumbered. He was afraid that he might not have God's help. And it was the seventh day. So what should Saul have done? He should have waited. He should have trusted. God knows what he's doing. And the instructions were clear. But what did he do? Well, he couldn't wait. So what he does is he takes on himself the role of priest. And he offers the sacrifice that Samuel was going to, sac was, uh, going to offer. And what do you know? Just as he's done it, Samuel turns up and he says, what have you done? And Saul says, I had to do it. I needed the Lord's favor. But in that very statement, he shows that he doesn't really have faith in God. Because if he wanted the God, uh, God's favor, he would have trusted. He would have waited. He wouldn't have been driven by fear and panic. He wouldn't have been freaked out by the size of the Philistine army. Now in chapter 15, God tells Saul to execute his judgment on the Amalekites. And he says, don't take any prisoners and don't take any plunder. Now, by the way, that is not what you do if you're trying to build an ancient empire. Now, if you're trying to build an ancient empire, you take slaves, you demand a ransom for the king's life, you take their livestock, you make the people pay you tribute. 
You do what's going to make you a prophet by going to war. But this is not an exercise in empire building, and it's not an exercise in profiteering. It's an exercise in judgment. And that is why Saul is not to profit one cent from going to war, even if it costs him. What does Saul do? He keeps the king alive. He keeps the best of the livestock. And then he builds a monument to his own honor. He acts like an empire builder. This is a man who does not know how to honor God. All he knows is how to be like all the other kings out there. Oh yes, when Samuel confronts him, he says, Oh, but I did do what God said. He denies the wrongdoing. He claims the moral high ground. He says, Oh, I took the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord and worship. But Samuel rebukes him, saying, To obey is better than sacrifice. If you were faithful, you would not have tried to profit from this. Saul failed because he was fearful. He failed because he was faithless. And thirdly, because he was jealous. After his failures, he's rejected as king. But he stays on the throne until his death at the end of the book. From chapter 16, we start to be introduced to the person who will replace him, David. Uh, and David becomes famous for defeating the Philistine super warrior, Goliath. We talked about that just a moment ago. But have a look at how Saul responds to David's rise. In chapter 18, the people are singing songs about their heroes. And this is what they say. They sing about Saul and David. And they say, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul is praised as a military hero. He's slain his thousands. But what use is that? If David is praised for tens of thousands, what gets Saul is the comparison. And from that point, all the way to the end of his life, the whole back half of the book of 1 Samuel is all about how Saul becomes murderously obsessed with killing David. We see him pursuing David with a force and focus that far outweighs anything that we see him in pursuing the enemies of Israel. David is his best fighter, his most loyal subject. And yet Saul essentially becomes maddened by his own self-preoccupations and insecurity. Because that's really what's behind all this. Saul is conceited. He's self-centered and self-protective. He cares too much what other people think of him. And he thinks too much about how he can defend himself. And that makes him go mad in the end until he dies. Saul is the kind of king who fails. He's the kind of leader who might initially look like he's getting results, he's bringing people along, he's winning the battles, but he's motivated by the wrong things. He doesn't have integrity, and ultimately he becomes a mad tyrant, not a king. But what about us? Can we say that we've succeeded where Saul has failed? Because we are fearful. We hate being threatened. But we're so hypersensitive and so easily offended. We read into people's text messages and social media posts a hostility or personality that really might not be there. All the while posting our own digital messages that are designed to provoke a response. We feel insecure about ourselves. And so we employ excuses and self-defenses. And, and we deflect negative attention onto other people. 
We're unwilling to fight ourselves, and so we hide behind the safety and anonymity of crowds and digital personas and digital filters. We're also faithless. We might have the appearance of religion, but deep and abiding trust is not there. And how can I say this? Because we don't pray nearly as much as we should. We don't go to God because we believe too much in ourselves. And because we are too stingy. We're not generous with our time or our trust or our treasure. And because we have no rest, we're full of doing, 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 busy, busy, busy. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm burnt out. We have no rest because we do not know that God is in control. Our hearts are restless, as Augustine says, because we have not found our rest in God. And so we are jealous. We care too much about how we compare to others. We treat too much as competition, and we cannot rejoice in other people's wins. We want too much for other people to praise us and no one else, to honor us beyond what we probably deserve, to feed our self-image, even if that image is distorted and exaggerated. We don't know how to receive criticism well, and we make ourselves mad, chasing after the goal of being more loved than others. Not many people are fit to be king. Not many of us would do better than Saul. Well, we do need a king. But the kind of king we need is the opposite of Saul. We need a king whose faith makes them fearless, but not in an arrogant way. Somehow this king needs to be one whose faith makes them selfless, humble in the best possible way. And this is how the story introduces us to David. In chapter 13, verse 14, which we had read for us earlier, Samuel says to Saul, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. What Israel needed was a man after God's own heart. That's an expression that means to really be on someone's side so that their interests are aligned with your interests. God's choice, in other words, was someone who was going to be faithful to him. Now, when we go to the elections, we are looking for someone who is after our own heart, someone whose interests align with our interests, uh, someone who will be faithful to us, someone who won't let us down. And whenever we complain about our politicians, it's because they have let us down. They haven't been faithful to us. They haven't got our best interests in mind. Now Saul was the one that Israel had asked for, the one who would lead them in battle, to establish them as a people in the land, but he let them down. And at the end of the day, he didn't have God's interests at heart and he didn't have their interests at heart. Now the confronting thing is that I don't think any of us would qualify to be king either. And I certainly wouldn't. You might be gifted in problem solving or communication. You might have charisma and people skills. You might be beautiful and popular and influential. But I bet you aren't fearless. I bet you aren't free of of self-centeredness or narcissism. And as much as I might hope and pray that you grow into a person who is after God's own heart, That's a high bar that not many people have reached. The very fact that we don't qualify to be king 
is the reason why we need a king. We need someone to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. When Israel was trembling before Goliath, not a single person qualified for the role of leading Israel except a shepherd boy, a young man who knew what it meant to put his own life on the line, to lay down his life for the sheep, to protect them from the wolf, the lion, the bear, because he needed to trust God enough to face danger even if no one else was by his side. David was the man after God's own heart. And we're going to unpack his story over the next few weeks. But a thousand years later, another king would come. Not to save Israel, but to save the whole world. He would describe himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He was the greater David. Faithful, fearless, and selfless. Faithful enough to do God's will fearless enough to lay down his life, selfless enough to do it for people, for us, even before we trusted him. Now, you might have come into this room today without a king. You basically just lived your life doing whatever was right in your own eyes. The Bible says that is a path to chaos. You might have come in following a king who's going to let you down. Well, you wouldn't call them a king, but... They are who you follow, who you devote yourself to, who you serve. But that is a path to being miserable. You might have come in trying to be a king. And you have more of Saul in you than David. And that is a path to madness. I'd like to invite you to walk out of this room today with a different king. One who's really qualified. In fact, the only one who's really qualified for the job. And the only one who won't let you down. Jesus is inviting you into his kingdom. And the way in is to make him your king. I want to give you a template for how to pray a short prayer to make him your king. Whether that's something that you want to do now or at some point in the future. It's a prayer that says, sorry, thank you, and please. I've got it there on the bottom of your page, so let me just read it for us. Jesus, I'm sorry that I'm more like Saul than David. I'm fearful, faithless, jealous, and self-centered. I want to turn away from these things and live differently. Thank you for being the true and faithful king. Thank you that you laid down your life for me and for making it possible for me to live in your kingdom. I want you to be my king. Please help me to be faithful fearless and selfless with God's strength. Now I'm going to pray this prayer and if you know that God's spirit is at work in your heart to lead you to him, then I'd like you to pray the words after me in your own mind. Uh, if that's not where you're at, that's totally okay. Use this time to think about how, what you would ask of God. But let's bow our heads now. Jesus, I'm sorry that I'm more like Saul than David. I'm fearful, faithless, jealous, and self-centered. I want to turn away from these things and live differently. Thank you for being the true and faithful king. Thank you that you laid down your life for me and for making it possible for me to be in your kingdom. 
I want you to be my king. Please help me to be faithful, fearless, and selfless with God's strength. Amen. Now, I'd love to know if you did pray that prayer. And if you did have questions from today, I'm sure there are many things that you could ask questions about. I'd really love to hear from you. Uh, You can come and chat to me as we finish. I'll be at lunch as well. Uh, Or you can email me. My email's at the bottom of your handout, and I'd really love to hear from you. We will probably have an opportunity to address some of those questions over the next few weeks. So please do take the opportunity to send in your questions and comments. And I really hope you can come back next week for more. Thanks for listening to today's talk. The Evangelical Union, or EU, is a student club on campus at Sydney University that seeks to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. To join us or to find out more, please visit sydneyunieu.org.